Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament. The book of Hebrews, chapter 3, verse 7, through the end of the chapter, verse 19. Hebrews 3, 7 through 19, God's word from the New Testament. Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works. For forty years, therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confession firm to the end, as it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. As far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Let us pray. So are you stubborn? Does your resume read strong-willed, obstinate? Well, by and large, stubborn, stubbornness is a feature that we like to apply to others more than ourselves. They're stubborn, not you. As the teacher t-shirt says, I'm not stubborn. My ways are just better than yours. Indeed, when it comes to us, we like to color stubbornness as being determined, right, having grit and fortitude. But when it comes to other people that are stubborn, they are exhibiting the vices of being arrogant and pig-headed, difficult and unresponsive to reason. Thus, parents will label their kids as stubborn, The husband thinks his wife is headstrong, but she insists that he is the mule in the relationship. Indeed, stubbornness is the mirror that we refuse to look into, but we will use it as a lens to peer at others at. Well, the author of Hebrews will not permit us to look away from this mirror. He demands that we take seriously the lethal and spiritual dangers of being stubborn. For in so doing, our faith learns to cling ever tighter to Christ. So with the opening of this third chapter, the author set before us the faithfulness of our apostolic high priest, Jesus. Just as Moses was faithful in in God's house as a servant, so as the son, Jesus was faithful over the house of God. The architect deserves more honor than the house, so as the son builder, Jesus possesses a greater honor than Moses. And with the pristine faithfulness of our Savior painted before us like a bright mural, we then were called to be faithful. 
Christ made us his holy family. We are the household of Jesus. And we've been granted a heavenly calling, a destiny and goal above in the celestial age. Thus, we have to hold fast to our sure and confident hope. And this theme of faithfulness towards that otherworldly glory continues to be the main dish on the table as the author now quotes Psalm 95 to take us deeper. As the Holy Spirit says, and we should not ignore this little introduction to this psalm citation. To begin with, the author mentions the ultimate author of the psalm, the Holy Spirit. We're not introduced to the human author of Psalm 95, but this is not important as the supreme writer of the psalm is the Spirit of God. Next, the Spirit is speaking in the psalm in the present. The force of this line is that the Spirit is speaking to you continually. The human ink of this psalm may have dried thousands of years ago, but the ongoing voice of the Spirit is yet active. This psalm is not a dead relic of a bygone and irrelevant age, but it is the living and authoritative word of God forever animated by the Spirit. No dust has to be brushed off this psalm as it is ever fresh and present by the Spirit. And the currency of the Spirit's word further stands out by the time stamp. Today. Today if you hear his voice. Now this stresses the immediate application of the imperative. It paints with urgency that the command needs to be heeded now before it's too late. That is, the season to obey is fading fast and to procrastinate is suicide. Now is the moment to listen and obey, for once the sun sets on today, the night of judgment falls, and there is no turning back. Well, with the sirens flashing, now the command lands in the middle of Main Street. Do not harden your hearts. Now, this is a familiar Old Testament idiom, which has several synonymous variations in the Old Testament. Stiffening your neck hardening or turning your back are equivalents to hardening your heart. But what does this mean? Well, this idiom often gets translated as being stubborn in English, but its meaning is more precise than our English word for stubborn. To make hard the heart is the internal disposition of rebellion. It's the deliberate refusal to accept facts, reason, and the truth. A hard heart blatantly closes the mind and ears. It is to steal the mind so that outside advice cannot penetrate. Particularly, a rock-hard heart stands with evil hostility towards God. It chooses disobedience and disbelief as a foe to the living God. Thus, stubborn in English can have some positive connotations, but there is nothing good, proper, or virtuous in a hard heart. And to concretize this unyielding organ, the psalm refers to history. Do not petrify your heart as in the rebellion on the day of testing. 
Now, rebellion and testing here translates two place names. Testing stands in for Massa and the events of Exodus 17, and rebellion looks to Meribah in Numbers 20. And as you recall, the happenings of these two locales are quite similar. In Exodus 17, right before they reached Sinai, the Hebrews complained of having no water. They put God to the test to see if he was present, and Moses struck the rock to unleash a river. In Numbers 20, the people again bellyached about no water. Moses hit the rock to uncork a torrent. And yet these two lookalikes happened 40 years apart. Massa is pinned on the calendar in year one, and Meribah is recorded in year 39 or 40. Hence, these twins are like bookends that fence in the entire wilderness period in order to color everything in between. That is, the whole 40 years was characterized by Israel hardening their hearts in rebellion and testing the Lord. Thus, the psalm says, they always go astray in their hearts. They never knew God's ways, which means they constantly disobeyed the laws and words of God. Therefore, by this psalm, Hebrews creates an analogy. Our lives between the redemption of Christ and the coming heavenly glory is similar to the Israelites' trek from Egypt to the promised land. Like Israel of old, we live in a worldly wilderness. We pilgrimage from redemption to rest. However, with this historical and typological comparison made between our lives and the wilderness period, now the psalm narrows its focus to a singular event within those 40 years. The oath of judgment mentioned in verse 11 is a reference to Numbers 14, which we read. This was when the 12 spies returned with an evil report of the promised land and then plotted to kill Moses and return to Egypt. Such was the apostasy of the Israelites that earned them the wrath of God so that all those 20 years and older would die in the desert and never lay an eye on the land of God's promise. To perish in the wasteland with your corpse being unburied pictured the everlasting curse of judgment. In fact, the word for provoked in verse 10 Uh, more so means to be disgusted, to loathe. The Lord was revolted and sickened by the rebels. The Lord vomited out his people into the curse of God-forsaken death. And with this psalm and the wilderness history fresh before us, now the author moves to apply and expound on these Old Testament truths. He drives the point home. Beware then, brethren, so that an evil, unbelieving heart doesn't arise in any of you. Now the author explains for us what a heart hard is. It is both evil and unbelieving. An evil heart is when the center of our being is bent towards evil. The evil heart craves wickedness. Its appetite salivates for the foul and the rotten. Evil is as evil does. 
Likewise, the unbelieving heart is recalcitrant to trusting in God and his word. It has no disposition for faith or belief. When it comes to God's word, an unbelieving heart is always on opposite day. God says, go right, and it goes left. The Lord utters the truth, and the unbelieving heart labels it a lie. This is evident in the ancient Israelites. God offered them life in the promised land, and what did they call it but death? Yahweh freed them from the idols of Egypt, and then they voted to return to Egypt. The glory cloud floated over their heads, and the Israelites slandered, God's not with us. The Lord split the Red Sea, but they doubted if God could even give them a drink of water. From Exodus to Deuteronomy, an evil and unbelieving heart is on full display for us. And such a perverse, distrusting heart leads to falling away from the living God. It results in apostasy, the spiritually violent turning away from the true God. Moreover, in the Old Testament, to turn from the living God communicated going back to idols. One flips a U-turn from the Lord of life to speed towards the lifeless deities of stone and wood. Thus, the wilderness generation rejected Yahweh to go back to the idols of Egypt. And the same temptation is crouching at the door of the congregation of the book of Hebrews. Remember, the author is writing to a church that is contemplating a return to Judaism by giving up Jesus Christ. They are in danger of becoming like Israel in the wilderness, which is the worst possible fate. And we are not immune to the same lethal temptations. Unbelief can grow in our hearts. Evil can infect our souls. We are not spiritually superior to the Israelites who came out of Egypt. But for the grace of God, there we go as well. And yet the mercy of Christ is wonderfully present for us, which we can avail ourselves to by exhorting one another daily. Verse 13. What is the guard against unbelief infecting our hearts? It's regular exhortation from other saints. Now, exhorting here has both the sense of admonishing and comforting. Sometimes exhorting is tough love, and others, it's a gentle hand of patient encouragement. Though this exhorting is a corporate activity, it falls to all the saints, men, women, and kids. This obedience belongs to every last one of us. The author here doesn't say exhort yourselves. Sure, we find such commandments in other parts of Scripture. Rather, here the author focuses on letting others encourage us. But why is this a community practice? Well, because this is the antidote to unbelieving stubbornness. The last thing a hard heart wants to do is to listen to other people. A metaphoric heart loves to get lost in its own head and to listen only to its own counsel. A potent medicine for arrogant stubbornness is hearing the voice of other people. 
Thus, this regular congregational exhortation prevents us from being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The encouragement of the fellow saints aids us in remaining humbly open to correction and comfort so that we don't become pig-headed. If we plug our ears to exhortation, then we get lost in our own heads. We become open to sin's deceitfulness. And the deception of sin is manifold. How does sin defraud us? Well, first, sin says, you're okay. You're in the right. God's not going to judge you. It whispers, there's always tomorrow. Enjoy some guilty pleasures today, for you can always repent the following. Next, sin lures us into thinking that stubbornness is a virtue, an expression of honor and strength. Furthermore, sin deceits by turning our attention to other matters. Don't spend so much time on spiritual things. You have more important things to do. You don't have time for church. You've got bills to pay, vacations to plan, and pleasures to enjoy. Next, sin guiles us with the sham that things are better in Egypt. Following God, trusting in Christ, it's too hard. You're better off with the kettles of meat, with cucumbers and garlic in Egypt, instead of this manna. Finally, sin dupes us to fear other things more than God. Your real problem is the giants of the world, not obeying God. It'll play the practicality card. Focus on the practical, where God doesn't help, so do it yourself. Yes, the snares of sin are many, and most of these spring up from only listening to yourself. They're not just being bamboozled by sin, but this deception is a self-deception. But the loving voice of fellow saints break open this stubborn prison to let in the light of God's truth. Indeed, we listen to fellow saints because we're sharers in Christ. And to share in Christ is to be united to him, to be beneficiaries of his grace and salvation, and to have access to all his love and mercy. It means we belong to Christ as our elder brother, as our apostolic high priest. And to participate in Christ means we belong to the family of God to have communion with the saints as sisters and brothers. Belonging to Christ opens the door to all his heavenly resources and grace. It reminds us of our true identity in Christ and fuels us to live it out with faith and purity. And yet the call to faithfulness remains. The warning of falling away still stands. And so the author comforts us with our relationship with Christ if we hold fast to him. This second line of verse, 13, verse 14, though, requires some massaging. The word here for confidence actually never means this. Instead, it means reality or essence. And original connotates first or beginning. Thus, the author tells us to hold on to the first reality, which is nothing less than the person and work of Christ preached to us in the gospel. 
The good news of our salvation in Jesus is the true reality, and it is the beginning of our spiritual lives. Our first confession of faith. Indeed, first, or beginning, plays off the end. We hold to the reality of Christ from the first to the last. For when it comes to when we come to for when we come to faith, we do so until we die and forever. Our faith must persist to the end. Thus, the author continues to drive home the message of faithfulness, of remaining in the faith, and he lists three examples to impress upon us the need to be faithful. All of which he pulls from the history of the wilderness generation. First, who heard and still rebelled? Well, it was those who Moses led out of Egypt. Those Hebrews witnessed the mighty deeds of the Lord like no other. The ten plagues, passing through the sea, the glory cloud, the voice of the Almighty from Sinai. No other generation in recorded history was exposed to so much visible glory of God. In certain ways, the miracles of the Exodus sparkle brighter than the wonders of Jesus' earthly ministry. And yet all these visual wonders didn't stop the Israelites from rebelling in the wilderness. Second, whom did God abhor for 40 years? It was those who sinned in the desert and perished. The Lord loved the Hebrews to bring them out of Egypt, but in their sin, God's love was turned into detesting. Third, against whom did he swear his judgment? It was to, against those who were disobedient. The sworn curse of God fell on those who broke the laws and words of our Lord. And the force of these three examples from the Old Testament is a warning against presumption and complacency. If you've seen all these miracles, there's a tendency to think you're safe. You saw God's glory. Nothing else is required. But witnessing wonders is no guarantee of faith. Likewise, if God rained manna down on you, he's not going to judge you. Your sin doesn't matter. You can rebel all you want. Yet this is far from the truth. For the sins of Israel, they perished in the desert. For the wickedness they sowed, they reaped the sworn wrath of the Lord. Moreover, these examples make clear that we, like Israel, are a pilgrim wilderness period. We live between Christ's redeeming work and his second coming. Now, there are differences between us and Israel, but there are also similarities. If we think we are better than they, if we think our lives are superior, then we should think again. The same temptations and dangers threaten us. For we, too, live in the howling wasteland of the world's spiritual desert. We need to be vigilant in the faith so that unbelief doesn't creep up in us. As the author closes off this paragraph, we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Their unbelieving heart shut the door to God's rest. And this shift from disobedience to unbelief is significant. Three times Israel failed due 
to their sinful rebellion and arrogant disobedience. But now they fail to enter due to unbelief. Why the shift? Well, for one, this shows the the relationship between faith and works. True faith fruits good works, while disbelief flowers sin and rebellion. Behind Israel's breaking of the law was lurking an evil and unbelieving heart. Yet this shift also transitions us from the type to the reality. That is, the Old Testament makes clear that Israel failed to enter the land of Canaan, the earthly land, because of their disobedience. But the earthly land was a picture of the eternal rest of God, and those who forfeited eternity did so by disbelief. Israel may have won the earthly promised land by obedience, but the reality of heaven was held out to them through faith alone. Well, God has not put before us some earthly paradise if we obey well enough. We are not like Israel in this regard. Yet in Christ, the heavenly rest is still ours through faith alone. Therefore, Israel's fall into unbelief is a true warning for us. By exhorting one another regularly, we must guard ourselves against being hardened by such an unbelieving heart. We are to encourage one another in the faith, and we must listen to one another to have our own faith admonished and comforted. Indeed, by focusing on faith, the author pushes us to our true strength and grace. For faith is not primarily a business of introspection, but of extrospection. Faith looks to another for help, for life and salvation, and that other is none other than Christ, the priest who laid down his life for our sins. This is whom we believe. The Son of God, through whom all things were created, who rose from the dead for our justification, He is our trust. Our faith does not rest in ourselves, in our strength, or in our success. But it holds firmly to that first reality, the glorious death and resurrection of Jesus, for our forgiveness, for our faithfulness, and for our heavenly hope. Thus, this call to faithfulness, this warning against unbelief, sets before us Jesus Christ, our apostolic high priest, who was first faithful for us. Israel had Moses, a great mediator and help, but our help is far superior. The Lamb of God who takes away our sin, our great champion, who has conquered and is subduing all his and our enemies. Thus, dear saints, let us encourage one another in the faith. May we listen humbly to each other so that a hard heart of unbelief doesn't creep up in us. But most importantly, may we exhort one another with nothing less than the glorious gospel of Christ. Let us preach the gospel to each other, and may we listen to the gospel from one another. For as we cling to that first reality, Christ and all his grace, 
we are heirs and participants in all of Christ's spiritual benefits now and forever. And he who is with us is strong and will never let us go.